Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good afternoon, <clears throat> or actually good midday uh, <clears throat> here in the uh, Eastern Standard Time Zone <clears throat> of the United States. <clears throat> we have a delightful uh, uh, cerebral massage session <clears throat> uh, for you uh, today. <clears throat> and it's focusing on an area that gets very short shrift uh, by the American media, by academia, uh, by the Congress, by the executive branch, um, and by the general public. And this is out of North Africa, <clears throat> uh, which has its own rhythms, its own routines, its own trends, its own indications, and its own relations uh, with the United States, <clears throat> less collectively than bilaterally. And there are reasons uh, for this. <clears throat> but far greater attention, of course, has been paid to the Arab East, uh, because for the last three and a half decades, <clears throat> this is where the United States has mobilized and deployed more of its armed forces, <clears throat> where more Arabs and Muslims have been killed, and where the United States has engendered, provoked, or antagonized in the eyes of residents in the region, more people there <clears throat> than elsewhere. So that's understandable. <clears throat> But the human aspect of it is uh, less understandable uh, because Americans are here and not there. And there is where the orphans have been created. There is where the widowers and the widows have been created. There is where refugees have been created. There's where people have been domestically displaced and their dreams shattered. <laughs> there is where sovereignty has been challenged and chipped away at. There's where political independence has been subverted by proxies, foreign intervention, and militias. Uh, there's where the question of country's territorial integrity is at greatest stake. So that's understandable, but this is at the risk of ignoring or overlooking or downplaying the significance of Arab North Africa and its importance, not just to the United States, <clears throat> but to the core of America's international network of allies, namely Europe, and the European Union, and the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And uh, do not think for a moment <clears throat> that this region uh, is directly related uh, to concerns pertaining uh, to Russia and the European Union, Russia and NATO, Russia and Ukraine, uh, Russia and out of North Africa, along with China. Uh, so uh, we have a plateful here. Uh, and starting from sort of the east to the west uh, with regard to Libya, Libya figured uh, indirectly in the last election before the most recent one, <clears throat> namely in Hillary Clinton's uh, defeat uh, in President Trump's victory. Uh, Libya came up over and over and over with regard to Benghazi and the loss of a prominent American diplomat there. Libya, of course, resonates in the United States Marine Corps. I'm a former veteran from the Army, not the Marine Corps, uh, but the songs of from the, uh, the shores of Tripoli. And uh, this has to do with the early days of America when we were a fledgling republic and armed forces were sent uh, to Libya uh, to combat piracy 
And likewise, during the uh, reign uh, rule or presidency of Thomas Jefferson, uh, negotiations with the Bay of Tunis, and uh, going still uh, further uh, uh, to the uh, West uh, with respect to Algeria, and this is a country where at its independence in 1962, one out of 8.5 Algerians was an orphan. No emerging developing country amongst the 130 non-aligned nations had to pay that great a price to obtain their national sovereignty and bring down the curtain on French colonialism. And then ending up with Morocco. <clears throat> Morocco's America's first friend. It was the first country to recognize the United States uh, during the era of America's first president, George uh, Washington. And Morocco is the Arab country closest uh, to Europe, especially across the streets of Gibraltar. And it's long been in a contention and dispute over the Western Sahara and its massive phosphate deposits and resources as a foreign exchange earner for Morocco. Uh, so these are four quite different countries and yet they all share the Mediterranean and they all share in different degrees uh, bilateral relationships with the United States with their own needs that are legitimate, their own interests, their own concerns, their own foreign policy objectives to help us understand the geopolitics and the dynamics of these four countries, the region as a whole and the sub-regional dynamics, intra-regional dynamics. We had Professor William Lawrence, who for many years was at George Washington University on his faculty, but now is at the American University in Washington, DC, where he teaches political science and matters pertaining to international affairs. He's also taught at Georgetown University, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International uh, Studies and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Uh, for those who are not into scholarship research, publishing and academe, these are the top three to four of America's universities, 2,198 uh, of them, uh, with regard to international affairs and foreign relations and diplomatic dynamics. Um, so we have an individual who's been a practitioner and a research writer, academician, and a diplomat, having served uh, as a diplomat for the United States government in Libya, and lived and worked for more than 15 years in more than half a dozen Middle Eastern countries. He's the ideal type of professional in foreign affairs practitioner that we at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations tried to seek out to find and to provide a platform uh, because they are able to combine uh, theoretical knowledge and insight and information with the more valuable and, and important uh, analysis schools, uh, skills and tools uh, from empirical experience. We have a rare individual in Professor William Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence, the floor is yours. Thank you, Duke. And I um, 
hope I can live up to even 5% of that introduction. I'll do my best. Um, a famous Moroccan uh, philosopher and intellectual, Abu Talib, the late Abu Talib, uh, was sitting next to me once at a conference in Morocco and uh, had listened enough to a panel and turned to me and said, all academics are talking parrots. And I, I said, what do you mean, Abu Talib? And he said, they come up with one good idea when they write their dissertation and they spend the rest of their career just repeating the same idea again and again. <laughs> this is a problem in academia. Uh, and it's rare that uh, uh, academics move beyond their sort of core thing and the best ones are the ones we celebrate. Um, uh, but with that in mind, I hope that I won't be repetitive, that there's, I know there's some people in the audience who've heard me speak many times before and you might hear some repetition here. Um, I also spoke um, for the fourth or fifth time at the uh, Nikusar annual conference in November uh, uh, in, a, in the sort of, let's say, first part of this two-part series we're doing today. Um, so I'll try not to repeat what I said in November. I encourage you to go back and look at that archive. I did a top 10 list of, of what we get wrong and need to get better about North Africa. Um, so I would highly recommend you take a look back at that. Um, I know we have a number of questions to get to today, so I'll do a quick uh, opening summary of what's going on. Uh, again, in addition to what I said in November, uh, and I'll be happy to field as many questions as we has, have, have time for. Uh, let's start with the most problematic, um, Libya. Uh, the Libya um, chatter uh, in, the, in the foreign policy publications and the diplomatic circles uh, late, the new conventional wisdom is that elections won't solve Libya's problems. And then whoever's talking will give you a long list of problems Libya needs to solve. It needs a constitution, it needs its institutions built up, it needs to deal with the migration issue, it needs to deal with the, the warring factions who could break out and fight any moment, if they have the Wagner group from Russia there, uh, they have um, uh, 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 all kinds of um, uh, 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 institutional anomalies and institutional deficiencies that need to be addressed. And yet, those problems can't be solved before elections, which is why the US government and the UN um, special advisor who's honchoing uh, what we're doing on Libya um, uh, in the international community is saying we need the elections first. Why? Because 2.8 million Libyans uh, registered for the elections that didn't happen on December 24th and want to turn the page. They want those elections to happen. And all the spoilers who are raising up these other issues and then it gets repeated in the foreign policy press want to hold on to power and want to delay uh, the inevitable, which is them leaving power and a new generation of leaders coming in and a new crop of leaders coming in. Uh, and so that's why, and also the whole system that's governing Libya right now, that's been in place uh, uh, since the ceasefire of August 2020, was set up by the UN, but the UN itself isn't legitimate to, 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 to govern Libya, uh, even though uh, Libya was birthed at the United Nations, one of the few countries that was uh, way back in the 19, um, uh, back in 1951, and has a kind of special relationship with the UN throughout its history, uh, both when it was on the wrong side of the UN and when it was on the right side of the UN. Uh, but uh, therefore, we need elections. And that's why Stephanie Williams is trying to keep them on track for uh, June, and everything else has to flow from that, not into that. 
So for example, just yesterday, or I think the day before, you know, all the wires said, the Libyan parliament has decided they need a new prime minister. Well, the Libyan parliament has had one quorum in the last couple of years. So it's basically just, the, it's the rump parliament that never got dissolved. And it's the mouthpiece for one of the presidential candidates, Aguila Salah. Uh, and he's just saying, I don't like the prime minister and I want someone else to be prime minister. And yet the wires picked that up on, uh, unmoderated and they say, the Libyan parliament made a decision. No, the Libyan parliament didn't make a decision. Uh, and, so, and so we have to understand uh, uh, this, this sort of UN mandated format we have right now and the necessity of elections according to the UN population, according to all the international friends of Libya and according to um, the UN special advisor um, uh, uh, who say we need a new legitimacy born from elections to do all the things that need fixing. Um, so that's my, my top line message on Libya. On Tunisia, uh, things have gone from bad to worse uh, following the July 25th um, uh, coup or constitutional coup or autogolpe using the Latin American term self-coup. Um, uh, uh, but basically what happened on July 25th is the uh, president of Tunisia seized all governmental power, all three branches of government and tried to fire all the elected officials at the national and subnational level, uh, uh, was uh, unsuccessful in the firings, but successful in the total usurpation of power. Um, his uh, chief of staff and uh, number one advisor uh, resigned a couple of days ago uh, in protest over some of the things that were going on, further isolating the president in the Carthage Palace. Um, and my sources on the ground in Tunisia say she's been arrested. Um, but the Tunisian um, government hasn't admitted to this. Um, they've also put the number two of the Nahda party and several other former senior officials um, uh, uh, under house arrest. And in house, house arrest in Tunisia means you're in some house somewhere, not your own house. And they're not saying where you are a lot of the time uh, in this current configuration of power. And um, uh, things are going from bad to worse. Uh, the, the, the French and the American position is basically, uh, we know this president's not going to budge, so we're just going to try to keep the Tunisian stock market and the Tunisian economy from crashing by using IMF mechanisms uh, to move forward. Um, but the efforts by the U.S. to kind of keep the economy afloat and sort of hope that there's some sort of uh, resolution of the political impasse at some point uh, is, is problematic for a number of reasons, including that um, uh, the U.S. has a $500 million MCC compact with Tunisia, for example, that's supposed to launch right now. The compact says if the parliament's closed and the country's not a democracy, they can't use the money. Uh, and the outgoing U.S. ambassador is trying to push forward the money through the system for perfectly good reasons. They want to support the Tunisian economy. But, but the, the congressionally mandated parameters is that a country's supposed to be a democracy or on the verge of being a democracy. And we have the opposite right now. We have a parliament that's been shut down for 18 months, uh, which we're six months into and no elections in sight. So um, all of that to say uh, things have gone from bad to worse in Tunisia and to, to get a sense of where the Tunisian population was, they were sort of wishful and hopeful at the beginning of this. Um, but in the latest poll, 30, we've gone from 30% of Tunisians to 65% of Tunisians saying that what happened July 25th was a coup. 
uh, and the crackdown on the uh, 11th anniversary of the Jasmine Revolution on the 14th of January was met with the most ferocious police response that we've seen in the last year, um, water cannoning and beating up protesters and some died um, afterwards in hospital. And um, uh, that sort of police impunity, which been, has been a feature of Tunisian politics throughout the last couple of years uh, uh, is getting worse, not better. Um, uh, that said, Tunisia is and continues to be the best poised Arab country to get back to its democratic project, uh, which was so successful in many ways for 10 years. Um, but uh, how to get there from here is still unclear. I'd be happy to answer questions about that. Um, in terms of Algeria, um, there are a lot of uh, things going on, um, uh, which, uh, more of which I think we'll cover in the Q&A, but the, the, the top line issue uh, is they broke relations with Morocco in August uh, in response to certain things Morocco was doing in the wake of the Abraham Accords, uh, and everyone's concerned about a war breaking out. Uh, neither Algeria nor Morocco want a war, um, but, but the ceasefire between Paul Zario and Morocco broke down a year and uh, three months ago. And uh, Morocco continues to uh, do things um, that have pushed Algeria to um, not only to break off relations, but to have its worst relationship with Morocco and with the United States that it's had in decades. Um, a lot can be done with Algeria. Um, uh, U.S. Uh, interests and positions align with Algeria on Tunisia, on Libya, on the Sahel, uh, and on a number of other issues. And I've been encouraging the State Department, which self-admittedly has not been talking to Algeria enough about common interests, uh, to start up those conversations again, uh, because there is so much alignment uh, geopolitically between U.S. and Algerian interests, uh, but uh, we haven't seized the opportunity. Um, in terms of... Uh, uh, the, uh, the Western Saharan situation, um, uh, as I said, uh, Paul Azario um, ended the uh, uh, ceasefire since 1991 a year ago um, uh, uh, with an announcement after Morocco uh, ended it with actions. Um, and the, uh, um, uh, it's a low-grade intensity conflict, uh, Sahrawis will scramble past the berms and up even into Moroccan territory on certain occasions, uh, but um, uh, we haven't had that higher level of conflict that everyone's worried about. Meanwhile, the Algerian gas is no longer flowing through Morocco to Europe, uh, which is problematic in the context of the Ukraine situation uh, because Algeria, Libya, and others can replace the gas that, um, that uh, Russia may not be providing to Europe uh, if we can get the the, the acts, the various acts together in North Africa uh, and to uh, provide those resources. Um, Morocco is the closest friend of the United States in the region, has the most robust, robust relationship. Um, but even that's a little bit fraught these days uh, in part because of the congressional actions under the NDAA uh, just passed in Congress, which for the first time in a long time separated Western Sahara from Morocco and told um, Defense Department, Pentagon, that they can no longer do uh, military exercises with Morocco until they show good faith on seeking peace with the Western Sahara. 
Um, now that can be waived uh, with a um, justification by Secretary Austin that um, U.S. Moroccan common security interests trump that condition. Um, but now a report has to be written and a justification has to be made. Um, uh, and all of this because of the um, uh, worsening situation over Western Sahara. And another aspect is the Biden administration, uh, sorry, the Congress is saying they're not gonna pay for the consulate that was supposed, that was inaugurated and then supposed to be built in Western Sahara, but that's not really moving forward. Um, now, when people press the State Department and the US government, the White House and say, what's your position on Western Sahara? Is it consistent with the Trump administration position? Uh, the answer is, uh, often uh, uh, to refer the question to the UN process. And with US um, pressure, uh, we now have a US envoy uh, for the Western Sahara issue, sorry, a UN envoy for the Western Sahara issue after a two year gap, uh, Stefan Dimastura, whose name you've heard in relation to uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, um, and Syria, uh, UN mediation. Uh, and he's making the rounds and doing all the things that he needs to do, um, but I would, uh, posit that I don't think a solution or even meaningful negotiations on Western Sahara are something we're going to see new out of the UN, but we do need a rapprochement between Morocco and Algeria and at least get back to the status quo ante of six months ago, where we have um, a cold peace and, and, and growing economic relations as opposed to the current uh, um, uh, uh, ending of diplomatic relations between the two countries and risks of war. Um, the uh, um, picture I've painted is a little more pessimistic than the one I did in November. The one in November was quite aspirational about what the U.S. can do with engagement. Um, but uh, uh, I'll end, I guess, on the note that um, uh, no one is more important in making peace, the peace and political process work in Libya right now from outside of the country than the United States. And that's how Libyans feel. Uh, uh, no one is more important right now in getting the international community together to help Tunisia out of its current political predicament than the United States, and particularly not the French, uh, because of the French elections coming up and their inability to press the Tunisians on almost anything most of the time. Uh, the most important country uh, to making um, uh, good between Algeria and Morocco uh, on the issues uh, that came out of the Trump administration is the United States. And the U.S. has all the levers of it, all of its different types of engagements and foreign assistance funds um, to use as carrots and sticks and leverage and part of the conversation. Um, as the U.S. ambassador in Tunisia, as I mentioned, is trying to do, but he's doing it without making enough conditions, without making enough asks. Um, and so the U.S. Uh, is engaged on North Africa, should be much more engaged on North Africa. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that as the U.S. Uh, develops its new Africa and new North Africa strategy, which haven't been laid out yet by this administration, uh, that we'll see more forward motion. Uh, I look forward to your questions. That's great, uh, Professor Lawrence. <clears throat> Just exactly what we uh, hoped uh, would transpire and, uh, and expected uh, from uh, a multifaceted, longstanding experience uh, uh, with you. Um, we have the device technologically of the so-called chat room uh, that those who would like to write a question uh, to us. And uh, already I have uh, uh, one, two, uh, close to nine questions. Um, here's the first one. It has to do with 
the fact that uh, uh, Morocco is, uh, or rather uh, Tunisia in this case is, um, but 146 miles uh, from Italy and uh, only nine miles separate Morocco and Spain. And you have this massive, pervasive, intensive, extensive sub-Saharan uh, trail of human tears, of hopes and aspirations of people longing <clears throat> to get away from what they see as oppression, dispossession, or no hope or no reason to hope that there would be a reason to hope. And if they could but make it to the European Union, uh, this would be their dancing at the end of the rainbow. Uh, would you comment uh, about the implications of this? Uh, are we near the end of it? Uh, is it being managed effectively, uh, woefully ineffectively? Uh, and what are the uh, ramifications uh, for the countries through which these migrants are passing, especially Libya, but also Tunisia and uh, Morocco. And of course, there's a long-standing uh, trend of millions of Algerians abroad in France. Um, huge issue. <laughs> As you know, we could do a whole uh, hour and a half on it. <laughs> but let me start by saying um, uh, it's a massive issue. And most importantly, because it not, doesn't destabilize North Africa, it destabilizes Europe. Brexit was caused by the migration issue. Uh, the the dust-ups with Scotland now over the Brexit issue is caused by the migration issue. The right-wing turn in French politics, whereby uh, the, the number two and number four candidates in the upcoming elections in the polls are far-right candidates because of the migration issue. The turn to the right in Italy is, is aggravated and caused by the migration issue. Eastern Europe, the problem between Belarus and, uh, uh, and Poland is caused by the migration issue. And so until we get the migration issue under control, Europe's future is threatened. Europe's democratic future is threatened. And that's why the Europe's view this uh, issue so um, uh, existentially. That's why the, in the recent Spanish consultation with Blinken, they just kept talking about migration and the Sahel uh, because it's existential for the Spanish. It's not just a migration issue. It's a how do we keep Europe democratic and unified issue. Um, in terms of um, uh, uh, the, the flip side of that problem is that European policy towards North Africa is way too focused on migration and not on everything else. And that's one of the reasons the US has to step in on gap fill on, on, on so many issues. You know, whether it's uh, COVID vaccines, which we're starting to distribute massively in the region, you know, whether it's various types of economic insist assistance and investment, which is, you know, does flow from the US. Uh, it's in part because Europe is not paying enough attention to the other issues beyond the migration. Uh, and worse, um, the, 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 the policy in the Mediterranean is messed up. So either um, the, the, the migrants are just hitting the shores and coming in unregulated, right? Which is, causes all the issues I'm talking about. Or uh, under Irini, the European policy, they're chasing the boats around the Mediterranean in foolish ways while humanitarian boats try to rescue them a little bit like what's on the US southern border with migrants being chased and then NGOs trying to help get them water and food. You know, and it's, 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 not, it's not coordinated, it's not humanitarian. It's, it's sort of the difference of opinion causing chaos at, at the border. Uh, that's the case in the Med as well. 
uh, and we regularly have drownings uh, uh, en masse in the Med, uh, yes. hundreds per year, if not thousands, uh, uh, because of this uh, cat and mouse game chasing the boats around in the Mediterranean. Even worse than that, we have repatriation. So a lot of the migrants are sent back to detention in Libya and elsewhere and got bombed uh, with mass casualties during the Haftar assault on Tripoli, uh, not unlike the bombing of African migrants recently in Yemen, uh, where 125 of them were killed in a, in a migrant detention center that shouldn't have been there and shouldn't have been holding those African migrants who don't only go to Europe, they go in all directions uh, looking for work. Worse than that, 90% of all the IDPs from all the African conflicts and the misery around the African continent in certain locations, and let me caveat it by saying Africa is mostly a success story right now in most of the countries, but there's a certain group of about 10 of the 55 countries that are producing all these refugees and migrants. Most of the IDPs stay in Africa, and we're not handling that well, which is part of which pushes some of them uh, to look for solutions in Europe or Yemen or wherever else, you know, en route to the Gulf. And the, um, uh, so the solution there is to figure out what to do with migrants on the African com uh, continent before they, they make the next move uh, to go up. Um, and, and Europe is aging. Europe needs the labor. We just have to regularize this. And if you don't believe me, a million Syrian migrants just showed up in Germany and Germany's better off for it. They were all absorbed into the German economy because the German population is aging and they need the labor. And it was kind of a middle-class educated Arab migration from Syria that worked out for Germany, uh, despite the fact that some German right-wing parties don't like it, it actually worked out. And all of the countries in Europe can absorb African and North African labor. It just needs to be rendered um, uh, 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 humane and systematized rather than ad hoc and rewarding the people who break the rules rather than the people that follow the rules. Um, uh, there's other new twists now, I'll just add this. Morocco is now a receiving country for migration more than a sending country. Morocco is actually accepting African migrants and employing them and giving them green, the Moroccan equivalent of green cards. And Morocco is way out ahead on that as it is on several other issues uh, in doing what needs to be done, which is increasingly Africa needs to take care of its own migrant issues rather than foisting it off on Europe. And I'll stop there. I could go on for another hour on that issue. Gotcha. You know, that was super. You provided uh, information and insight that's uh, otherwise hard to come by and uh, broaden the perspective and the lens through which we, we focus on this extraordinarily complex uh, issue that's not just political, not just economic, but it's social and it's humane as well. Um, next uh, uh, question has to do with uh, the <clears throat> intra-regional trade of these four countries. They're, they're adjacent to one another, geographically contiguous, they're neighbors, and yet the overwhelming uh, focus of their foreign trade is, is northward and eastward uh, to Southern Europe, not to themselves. Uh, can you put this in context and provide a background and perspective that will make it intelligible? Well, I was, I was reading just last night that, nine, uh, that MENA is the lowest intra-regional trader in the world at 9%. And what I was thinking when I was reading it was, no, the lowest intra-regional trading area in the entire world is Maghreb. 
uh, and because of the Algerian-Moroccan uh, um, conflict at 5%. Um, the, uh, and it's, it's, it's disorganized and it's unfortunate. So let me just give you an example. The Algerian-Moroccan border has been closed since 1994, uh, uh, largely, mostly over the Western Sahara issue. Um, and yet 18,000 families on the Moroccan side live off of trading um, uh, smuggled gas from Algeria, uh, 250,000 people, that's their main source of income uh, 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 to distribute gas to about 3 million Moroccans smuggled on trucks and even donkeys across the border. That's ridiculous. You know, that border does not need to be closed. Um, Morocco loses uh, uh, by uh, Peterson Institute uh, study a couple of years ago, something like two to 3% of potential GDP growth by the closed border. Algeria loses a little bit less because it's a richer country, um, but Western Algeria loses massively uh, by the closed border. Um, uh, uh, I gave a speech down on that border uh, several years ago mm. about how the border needs to be opened. And, and uh, I remember the dean of the university came up to me and he said, you, you realize the entire audience disagree with you. And I said, why? And he said, because the Algerians are a bunch of terrorists and drug dealers. And I said, that's funny, because if you go to Algeria, they say the Moroccans are a bunch of terrorists and drug dealers, <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's just, just not the case for the vast majority of people on each side of the border who just want to make a living and earn their lives. And it's time that, um, uh, that, that uh, uh, you know, wiser minds prevail and that border gets open, which was the message I gave during my introductory uh, remarks as well. Uh, uh, I'll stop there. All right. Uh, Russia and China. Uh, recently, I was asked to address the question of China as an ascending th threat uh, to the region with regard to U.S. national security, economic, and related interests. And I took issue with the premise itself uh, that at the global level, if that's the lens of the perspective of the prism through which one looks at what China is doing and not doing what we're doing and not doing, yes, one can uh, use maybe the uh, issue or the concept of a looming threat, et cetera, but not in uh, the Middle East, North Africa region, certainly not in Arabia and the Gulf, certainly not in the GCCC countries. I think the more appropriate lens would be that China is an ascendant geopolitical player. It's something quite different uh, and also manageable, tolerable, uh, accessible. Uh, now, on the Russian side, uh, the similarities there, uh, but to use the word threatening uh, perhaps is a bridge too far. Could you place those two dynamics, forces, phenomena in context for us with regard to the Arab Gulf Africa region? This gets back to the more extensive game in November about not underestimating or overestimating right. the Russia or China threat. Uh, so let me develop those ideas a little bit uh, further here. Um, <clears throat> Russia is not an economic competitor for anybody in Africa. Right. It's not even a big economy. Uh, it's competing in the sense that it has gas interests, you know, that it compete and it's got the Wagner Group in Libya, which I'll talk about in a second, you know, trying to control some of the gas resources, but it's not an economic competitor in North Africa on the economic uh, continent. It's a 
it's a strategic competitor in terms of, you know, it's got its geopolitical interests in Syria. It's trying to grow its interests in Egypt and it's got that small foothold in Eastern Libya, um, but it's not a major geopolitical threat um, uh, to US interests as long as that Wagner 2000 mercenaries in Libya, as long as we get that in check and under control and, uh, and that's something we don't do well. Uh, conversely, China is not a security threat in North Africa. I often hear, even from senior State Department officials, oh, the China threat, the China threat. The China Navy is not showing up in the northern, sorry, in the southern Med in North Africa anytime soon. Um, I'm a China hawk when it comes to Uyghurs and Taiwan and Hong Kong and South China Sea and the Quad and all that. I get that. China in its own neighborhood, its own near abroad, like Russia with Ukraine and Georgia, Abkhazia, all that. You know, I get that. Like in their near abroad, there's a there's a security dynamic here. But when it comes to Africa, uh, uh, it's mostly when it comes to China about economic interests, and the Chinese economic interests, in a strange way, converge with the American ones. Chinese want minerals to produce products for U.S. markets. The U.S. wants the same minerals, but can do it with China. And those minerals are available elsewhere, like in Iceland, but they're just more expensive in Iceland, so it's cheaper to get them in Africa, and that can be sorted. You know, China used to offer a lot of predatory loans in Africa. They're getting better, um, but they're also reducing a lot of the loans they're giving because they've had lack of success in some places. I just finished a big study, not published yet, on how China's reduced by about half its investments in Algeria, um, which is its strongest ally on the continent. Uh, they're not moving in, they're moving out. Uh, and they're shifting a lot of their oil and gas exports to Iran and Central Asia because Africa is more of a, a difficulty for China to get the oil and gas, whether in Angola or uh, other sources. Uh, uh, um, and so it, I'm not saying the Chinese aren't ever present on the African continent. What I'm saying is they've got fixed and predictable economic interests. The US has fixed and predictable interests. China is the largest public investor in Africa and the fastest growing. The U.S. is the biggest private investor in Africa and the fastest growing. And there's more complementarity between U.S. and Chinese interests in Africa than divergences. And, and, and so that's how we need to start. To, you know, we changed from great power competition and the Trump administration talking about strategic competition, which is also a vague term and, 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 and whatever. But, but um, I, I think the way to think of it uh, our, our, our 21st century relationship with China, and, and I think the Biden administration says this correctly, although they don't always do it correctly, is there are a lot of things we can do with China. There are a lot of things we disagree with China on, and, and those can be separate spheres as we work together with China on any number of things. And let me give you one example. I've worked a lot in the health space over the years, and China is constantly asking for the U.S. to help with its health interventions in Africa on things we also want to help with. What's our answer to China? No, we won't work with you in Africa on avian flu or Ebola or malaria or COVID. You know, and right now most Africans think that the Chinese are giving them more vaccines because China is making a lot of announcements about it when the US is giving them far more vaccines. We just gave another 2 million to Mauritania and Kenya. You know, we've given way more vaccines. Our mask diplomacy in Africa is better than the Chinese mask diplomacy, but we're getting the messaging all wrong. Um, so, so all that to say that there are actually more opportunities to coordinate with China on Africa than the need to constantly 
um, uh, compete with them. And frankly, the Africans aren't stupid. If they're getting bad uh, proposals from the Chinese, they come right back to the Europeans and the Americans. Uh, and the question is not what is China doing? It's what are we ready to do? Great. Uh, next question. Uh, the so-called Abraham Accords and Morocco being a, a signature and uh, recent uh, memorandum of <clears throat> understanding and information uh, between um, Israel's uh, defense minister, Danny Entz, and uh, his Moroccan counterpart, and uh, Algeria's uh, opposition to this, a rhetorical uh, hostility towards it. <clears throat> Can you place this in uh, context? Because in my own visits to Morocco over the years with congressional and other delegations, the largest demonstrations in favor of the Palestinian intifadas where Morocco, the Arab country, almost the furthest away from the scene of the dispossession and oppression of the Palestinians. So can you uh, unravel this, or untangle this part of it, and uh, comment, if you will, on the Palestinian issue, not going away by any means. It's the single oldest, single largest, single longest, single most complex of all of the obstacles to better American effectiveness in the Middle East, North Africa region. The media reports to the contrary, notwithstanding. Congressional sentiments to the contrary, notwithstanding. Uh, the Israeli lobby um, contestations to the contrary, notwithstanding. Uh, we need to speak the truth on this. Will you please do so? Yes. Um and uh, so much to say, uh, but I'll keep it short. Um, <clears throat> on Monday, the king refused to meet the Israeli ambassador to Morocco because even though the U.S. has recognized uh, Morocco's um, claims to Western Sahara, the only country in the world to do so, Israel did not. And Israel referred the matter to the U.N., the way the Biden administration has been doing. Uh, and so that was problematic for the king because in an interesting way, the Western Sahara conflict, which is one of the oldest in the world, and the Israeli-Palestine conflict, which is one of the oldest in the world, had been linked forever by the Abraham Accords in a way that isn't working for people, uh, including Israel. Uh, and so we, we're, we had this new dust up between uh, within the Abraham Accords of, well, what's going on? And just as the Biden administration is slow walking the consulate and slow walking the recognition, uh, now Morocco is slow walking the opening of the Israeli uh, embassy and slow walking certain aspects of the rapprochement under the Abraham Accords, uh, because this wasn't really thought through. Um, the uh, 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 security um, cooperation between Morocco and Israel is moving forward on drones and cyber and some other advanced technologies, um, but that's actually destabilizing the Moroccan-Algerian relationship, as I noted earlier. And that wasn't thought through. Um, and so as the Moroccans and, um, and, uh, and Israelis formed this new relationship, which I heard nothing but good things about it, a dozen think tank events over the last two months in Washington, um, it's really not that good. And when you talk to, I think, six Arab countries have uh, uh, normalized with Israel and about half of the 50 Islamic countries, so about 24, I did a count before this event, 24 Islamic countries have normalized with Israel and 26 haven't. Um, and the, um, 
And the first thing on the minds of the populations in all of the countries and the governments in the countries that haven't normalized is fine, we're, we're okay with working with Israel. It's just, you gotta deal with the Palestinian issue. You can't just push the Palestinian issue aside and say um, things are fine uh, uh, because they aren't. So um, uh, um, uh, now the Moroccan population is divided. You do have huge pro-Palestinian uh, uh, protests, which were suppressed recently in Morocco uh, in this context. But you also have 70,000 Israelis who go to Morocco every, every year who, who are tourists. And Moroccans in the tourism sector, which is huge in Morocco, love the Israelis uh, coming. And the Israelis love going to Morocco, uh, discovering, because uh, one-fifth of Israelis, it used to be one-fourth of Israelis, are of Moroccan origin. And most of them had never visited Morocco. Morocco. So um, th it's really important for Israelis to get to know Morocco. It's really important for Moroccans to get to know Israel, uh, and yet we can't do it at the expense of the Palestinians. With, with regard to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem, uh, from the beginning of the formation of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, Morocco has chaired the Jerusalem Committee, and it's because its dynasty has more impeccable genealogical credentials going back to the uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, than any other uh, Arab uh, government uh, regime or head of state. Uh, how can this be finessed or is it being finessed? They're trying to finesse. Pardon? <laughs> but, um, uh, and I've been at the OIC, uh, um, I've been actually, I represent the US government to the OIC during the Obama administration when we were trying to reach out to them under the Obama administration engagement policy. Right. Out of the Bush administration engagement policy, which I was one of the people in charge of. So I've been at, you know, I've been to Jed, I've been to the Rabat offices of the OIC, yeah. and we sit and what do we do? Why was the OIC founded? It was founded to deal with Iran and Palestine issue, which, you know, neither of which have been resolved yet. Uh, the U.S. is deeply engaged in um, working on the Iran issue. They're not deeply engaged in working on the Palestine issue uh, with one bright moment, I would say. When the Biden administration engaged heavenly on Israel-Palestine to end the last conflict with Hamas uh, and the West Bank and Arab populations within Israel and cut what Netanyahu probably would have wanted to be a two-month war down to a three-week war, um, the U.S. government said very, something very important, which helped, which was picked up in the region. It said a Palestinian life is as valuable as an Israeli life. It said we have to protect Palestinian human rights the way we protect Israeli human rights. Right to life is, is the first one. Uh, and, and that was a breakthrough. I hadn't really heard that type of language before because that's right. exactly how I view the region. Everyone, all of these people, and I've worked on normalization projects too. All these people have a right. I enjoy going around Morocco with Israelis and showing them their heritage uh, in, in, in an Arab country. Uh, uh, by the way, there are a lot of uh, Iranians, of, uh, Israelis of Iranian heritage who, who, you know, like to go to Iran. They do go. Uh, right. That's lost in the picture. Uh, so, so, so all of this needs to be done better. It needs to be finessed better. And the Moroccan king um, has realized that he was out ahead of his population and out ahead of his brethren countries a little bit. And I think that's why we're seeing some of this slow walked and recalibrated. Uh, uh, unemployment, corruption, and the uh, drift, or rather the, the, the gallop of the, the unemployed, disillusioned youth of uh, Arab North African countries, in Tunisia particularly, but all four uh, making their way to ISIS in Iraq and Syria. 
Um, what's the prospect? What's the status? What's the context? So there's been some changes here. It is true that 6,000 Tunisians went to ISIS in Syria, um, but eight to 10,000 joined ISIS. And after ISIS lost most of its territory in Syria in the end of December, in December 2017, most of the Tunisian ISIS fighters went to Libya. Uh, and that's one of the reasons um, we've had continued instability in Tunisia on the terrorism side, uh, 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 emanating from Tunisians in Libya. Um, uh, 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 I've done a lot of work on the foreign, returning foreign fighter issue. Um, Morocco does a much better job than its uh, neighboring countries to the east. Um, the, uh, um, uh, the main issue here in how we frame the issue is the, the default position of states and society when it comes to foreign fighters is those guys are dangerous and keep an eye on them. So most returning foreign fighters get jailed or surveilled unless they, to quote an expert on this uh, who lives in Morocco, they sing, meaning they come back from the ISIS battlefield and they just start spilling their guts and then they can, you know, they get special treatment. But most of them are too scared to do that when they arrive. Uh, and so they need to be cult cultivated over time. But what all of the studies, and I work on this issue quite a bit, of returning foreign fighters uh, everywhere in the world, but particularly in this region, have shown us is that a job is not enough and religious uh, re-education is not enough. They can't hold the job if their life is still messed up. And they won't accept the religious reteaching unless they got their own stuff together. And so one of the new approaches that's being used, and there's a big conference on this going on tomorrow, PeaceCon, if people work in this area, uh, where a friend of mine is getting a big award there um, posthumously, um, is, is uh, a trauma-based approach where you look at the foreign fighter not as just someone who needs a job or needs to understand Islam better, but someone who's been through trauma that led them into this life, trauma in the battlefield, and the trauma of re returning home and being rejected like a, like, a veteran, like a Vietnam veteran coming home. And how do we uh, reintegrate them psychologically first, you know, and in terms of, you know, life skills and empowerment and, and you know, telling their story and the catharsis of that and using other returned fighters as models uh, and getting them, you know, uh, empowered, then they can hold that job then they can accept that new messaging about religion. But until you deal with the trauma and the dislocations, the triple trauma and the dislocations, um, the other programs have been relatively unsuccessful. Okay. Let's shift the focus uh, now to uh, Egypt. Uh, two questions here. A uh, shorter one has to do with the Sinai and the ongoing <clears throat> uh, acts of extremism, uh, uh, militancy there and its impact on the tourism in industry in the hotels, restaurants, uh, that source of Egypt income, but uh, more importantly, uh, matters pertaining to the Nile River and what Ethiopia upstream uh, is doing. We've had these kinds of challenges between uh, uh, Turkey and Syria, Turkey and Iraq. Uh, there are something like uh, 200 uh, international rivers that flow across uh, neighboring boundaries as is the case with Egypt. Uh, 
where 90% of the fresh water uh, comes from the Nile uh, there. And this aspect of uh, Egypt's uh, reality uh, needs to be focused on to a greater extent than has been the case. Also, the Suez Canal, which was widened uh, and, and much uh, tallyhooed as a major boost for international maritime infrastructure, only to have for the first time a major uh, a vessel stuck lodged in the waters of the uh, widened Suez Canal. You still have Al Azhar, the world's oldest, most prominent <clears throat> uh, university, training uh, by its own standards, uh, teaches in moderate Islam, not just for the Arab region, but throughout the Middle East and the entire Islamic uh, uh, world. Uh, you have Egypt's uh, revived partial relationship with Russia in terms of cooperation on building uh, a nuclear facility in Egypt, that being Russian technology, science, research, and expertise, not Western, uh, not, not American there. And you still have the headquarters of the League of Arab States, whose obituary has been written oftentimes, but uh, does play a major diplomatic mediation, uh, conflict resolution role uh, when the moment is propitious and the atmosphere is, is receptive. And the fact that one out of, between one out of four and one out of three of all the Arabs on the planet is an Egyptian. Uh, so please focus, uh, if you will, on Egypt in this particular context. I think I heard nine questions in there. Uh, so I'll uh, address as many of them as I can. Um, and if I miss any, feel free to come back. Uh, let me start with um, the Nile. Um, there's a lot of Sturm und Drang, right, about the Nile thing and saber rattling and, and whatever. But the real issue as I see it, and I've worked this issue quite a bit when I was in the State Department and afterwards, is how fast the Ethiopians fill the dam and what the dispute resolutions are. And Egypt is worried, getting 90% of its water from the Nile, that if the Ethiopians fill the dam too fast, they'll lose water and they'll lose leverage. And if they don't get the dispute mechanisms worked out, they won't be able to, having lost that leverage, get more water and more of what they need downstream. And so there's a lot of, um, uh, angst right now and saber rattling coming out of Egypt about the dam, there's no crisis right now. The crisis is manufactured uh, because Egypt wants to set in stone for the long-term future mechanisms that work in its interest. The problem is Ethiopia and Sudan are too messed up right now to solve the problem. Ethiopia is in the throes of a terrible war and Sudan's in the throes of a terrible coup. And Egypt can't really get what it wants on the Gerd Dam right now. Uh, maybe it thinks it can because um, you know there are two countries in a weak position, but their their countries aren't right are kind of dysfunctional right now, and they're really not going to come up with a solution. And even if they do, it won't be a lasting solution. So, uh, you know, my advice to and I talk to all the parties on this issue. My advice to all of them is we need to think more about carrots than sticks. You know, Ethiopia has developmental and energy issues. Egypt can help. 
um, Sudan has developmental issues and Egypt can help. Uh, and Egypt has its needs, which can be articulated, I think, more in a cooperative, in a collaborative way rather than threatening way, um, uh, because the, the solutions don't have to be zero sum uh, for the 12 countries on the Nile River. It can be uh, uh, negotiated as it has been for millennia uh, in, a, in, a, in an equitable and, um, and collaborative manner. And I think we need to get back more to that type of approach. Um, the, uh, on the issue of Sinai, um, you know, the, when it comes to counterterrorism, and I teach a whole class on this, uh, 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 either you're doing things that make the situation better or you're doing things that make the situation worse. And Egypt, when it comes to the Sinai, has done a number of things to make the situation better, but it's also done some things to make the situation worse, just like the U.S. did in Iraq and the U.S. did in Afghanistan. You know, counterterrorism is not an easy thing to do. Uh, and so the trick here is to help Egypt get better at what they can do well when it comes to suppressing uh, instability arising in the Sinai. Um, and part of that is pressuring Egypt to be more transparent about how it's using US weapons and more forthcoming in how it avails itself of opportunities for US training and cooperation when it comes to its Sinai operations. Um, and, and so there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an upside possible there if we get better at it. Um, in terms of um, the overall relationship uh, between the two countries, uh, let me say that um, U.S. assistance to Egypt means a lot. Uh, the U.S. position in Egypt, even though the U.S. gets beaten up a lot in the media and by government officials quite a bit, uh, means a lot. Uh, the, 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 the Egyptians do not want to deal exclusively with Russia, nor can the Russians give them most of what they want from the international community. Um, and the U.S. wants to work with the U.S. on a whole range of things. I had the privilege of uh, managing part of the U.S.-Egyptian assistance funds for four years, uh, and it was just a tiny percentage of the overall funds. And we funded 400 collaborative projects between the U.S. and Egypt, uh, you know, on the Red Sea, um, in the universities, uh, 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 commercializing projects. Egypt has more science on the shelf than any Arab country, meaning scientific discoveries that haven't been commercialized yet. Uh, Egypt has a, a great university system, which you alluded to in referencing the Asar, but beyond that as well, including some great new technology universities. Uh, Egypt has the largest human potential, as you mentioned, in the, in the Arab world. Uh, you know, so every month and every year that goes by that the U.S. and Egypt aren't collaboratively engaged in a whole range of projects uh, is a lost month, uh, not just for U.S. Egypt, but for the Arab world uh, as well. Now, the U.S. relationship has been um, spoiled, I, I think, somewhat since 2013, uh, hung up over the human rights issue in Egypt. Um, there's been some progress. I think there needs to be a lot more progress there and a lot better communication. Uh, as you know, there's a large Egyptian diaspora in the United States, and they're very vocal about what's happened to Egyptian American citizens and, um, uh, and Egyptians under Sisi. And so, you know, Egypt would do well uh, to heed um, congressional and American admonitions about uh, improving its human rights record, because uh, the amount of goodwill and good faith uh, to coordinate and cooperate with Egypt is, is ready. It's ready to go but we need to get over this hurdle. Gotcha. 
Well, thank you for that. Uh, some would take uh, issue with the, <clears throat> the uh, strength of the U.S. Uh, feet and legs and platform upon which to stand and, and being uh, a preachy or pontificating uh, with regard to uh, human rights. Yeah. Uh, because it is uh, inevitably linked to um, uh, political issues of representation or democratization with a little d or consultation and consent. When uh, Jefferson was asked to define democracy, that was his answer. It was the consent of the governed there. Uh, so given that in the past 22 years, the United States has had two national elections where the person who got the most votes lost uh, does not exactly uh, burnish <laughs> instead of tarnishing the U.S. Uh, image uh, on the uh, uh, human rights uh, front across the board. I know this is an emotional issue. It's a political issue, but it's also a realistic issue. And it can be as much of an obstacle as it can be a facilitative uh, matter of, of leverage here. Uh, Elizabeth uh, Myers, uh, who I haven't seen or heard from in a long time, I uh, would like to say hello to you and ask if you might address uh, issues of the uh, government of, of exile, the, the uh, Kabyle, or in Arabic, uh, Kabila, the, the tribes, uh, and particularly the Amazigh speaking, or more uh, commonly referred to as the Berbers of, uh, of the Arab North Africa region. Uh, those in exile, those who are domestic, and those who uh, object to being referred to as Arabs, but re prefer to be uh, referred to as Amozi or uh, Berbers as it were. Just as in Egypt, when Egypt was ridiculed in exile from the League of Arab States and the Organization of Islamic Conference, <clears throat> many Egyptians uh, said, no, we're not Arab, uh, we're Pharaonic. Uh, so uh, please address this aspect of the, what Americans, I think, would identify with more as the Berber issue. Um, so uh, uh, much, much, much to say on that issue. And I approached it in the November comments as well. So I encourage people to go back and look at what I said there. Um, but let me start by saying um, uh, I've spent time in the Amazigh language speaking communities in all of the North African states. I've studied the issue quite a bit. Um, there are Amazigh speakers in 11 uh, North African countries, uh, including Egypt. Um, I've been many times to Siwa Oasis, where most of the Amazigh speakers in Egypt are. In fact, the first time I went there in 1991, I believe, or yeah, 19, no, 1989, 1989 um, I, I, I came in speaking Amazigh, Moroccan-type Amazigh with them, and they kept saying, how did you learn Siwi? No one in the world speaks our language. Uh, uh, we, we, we only speak this. How do you know it? Uh, and I was introducing to these people the fact that they had <laughs> bro cultural brothers. Now, that's 1989. Fast forward to 2022. And uh, the Amazigh movement is international now with big celebrations in Canada and Boston and, you know, all around the U.S. And it's a... It's a global movement to preserve Amazigh culture um, in the face of what they see is uh, an Arab culturally nationalist cause that uh, um, uh, uh, marginalizes their uh, movement. Um, 
But I think it's wrong to see the Amazigh as an ethnic group. If you look at both DNA and culture, uh, Moroccans, who have the largest Amazigh-speaking population, are basically Berbers and Arabized Berbers. There's, there's very little Arab DNA or Arab culture in Morocco in many respects. It's basically uh, uh, you know, Ar Arab from the Arabian Peninsula. It's, 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 it's an Arab overlay to an Amazigh country in many ways. Um, Morocco is, and so um, uh, uh, there's there are uh, uh, cultural movements, political movements uh, uh, galore. Uh, they're increasingly working with each other. Um, I'll tell you another quick anecdote. Um, we were taught when I learned uh, North African studies and Middle East studies that there were about forty thousand to fifty thousand Amazigh speakers in Libya, and I rented. I was the first American to rent a vehicle after the. Um, uh, rapprochement with Libya and be lined up to the Amazigh speaking um, areas in the Nefusa mountains and was shocked to find as I went town to town to town to try to figure out where the Amazigh speakers were that, you know, how many people live in this town? 20,000, how many speak Amazigh? All of them. How many live in this town? 30,000, how many speak Amazigh? All of them. And I came away from the trip estimating there were about 350,000 uh, Amazigh speakers in Libya and when we've been told there was 40 or 50,000. Um, uh, and so it's still being discovered. You know, Amazigh speakers are discovering themselves. Scholars are discovering what's out there, which we didn't know. Um, and, uh, and we still have a long way to go. Morocco is way out ahead in um, uh, preserving the languages like the Irish did and the Israelis did with their traditional languages, you know, and, 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 and preserving the languages and teaching it and making a part of news and all that. Um, the other countries are starting to catch up. Um, um, uh, after Morocco had long marginalized things, whereas Tunisia embraced their Amazigh heritage. So anyway, there's a lot uh, to do here. It is the cultural roots of all of North Africa and parts of the Sahel. Um, and we all do very well to learn about it because part of what makes North Africa so special um, is the cultural aspects of North African life that are rooted in the Amazigh history, which is much older than the Arab history there. That's great. We're going to wrap, wrap up here, uh, Dr. Lawrence. Uh, uh, could you comment uh, in the wrapping up uh, of what you would have the Biden administration do more of or less of uh, to enhance <clears throat> uh, security, stability, predictability, anticipatory uh, uh, talents on our side uh, for trends and indications that are either on or over the horizon? And the role and position of France, is it still the lead so-called great power, uh, not in Egypt, but, uh, and not in Libya, but let's just say Algeria, Morocco, but if, uh, and Tunisia, uh, please comment uh, in your wrap-up statement. And let me say, I, I appreciate all these questions. I like all of them. I like that one especially. I like all of the previous one. They're all great questions. Um, uh, no administration does enough in any region of the world. And certainly the administration has not done enough in North Africa. And the, there's a lot more that can be done even though there's a lot that's going on. Um, the US government is large. It does a lot of things throughout Africa and in North Africa that people don't even know. Um, uh, and uh, uh, clearly we can leverage what we are doing to do more in the areas we need to do more in. Um, the French still have a larger sphere and more powerful sphere of influence in French North Africa. Um, and to a less degree, the Spanish, Italians, and British 
have influence in the areas that they had that colonial uh, past with. Um, but the US was wrong in the Obama administration um, to come up with this concept of leading behind, leading from behind, leading behind Europe, because Europe, as I noted in the answer to the first question, still hasn't sorted its past out with North Africa. And the US is therefore uh, uh, more admired in certain respects and more trusted in certain respects, particularly in Libya, than the other, uh, than the United, uh, um, than Europe. And so the US has to not lead from behind, but do what the Obama administration is doing, except they're doing it for Ukraine and not for North Africa yet, it's lead together. It's, it's the US has to lead, not lead from behind. Um, and there's a whole lot of issues uh, that we can work on. Um, uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation grants, as I said, are a great mechanism. Those are carrots more than sticks, right? Um, the Summit for Democracy concept and aftermath could, could become something it hasn't yet. Um, engaging with Democrats in the region, uh, the free trade agreement with Morocco and the ones in negotiations with the other are important. The TIFAs, the trade and framework, uh, the, the trade uh, framework agreements. Um, uh, things like the Tunisian uh, American Investment Fund type uh, enterprise fund is a great vehicle, uh, getting more OPIC money in. There's a lot of economic things that can be done. Um, right now, however, the U.S. does not have a North Africa or an Africa policy yet. They have an Africa czar at the White House that hasn't finished his work yet. They have a lot of unfilled jobs in the administration in North Africa, including ambassadorial uh, positions. Um, they have a Libya Stabilization Act in Congress, which is stalled. It needs to move out of the House passed it, but the Senate saying they might not even pass it. I actually have a meeting next week with Senator Murphy and another one with Senator Coons's staff. Uh, Coons has sort of got it stuck up, so we're going to try to get the Libya Stabilization Act moving. Um, uh, uh, and the U.S. also has to work with North Africa on dealing with the big issues in the uh, let's say, terrorism triangle of death between Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso, which is so bad, it's helped lead to coups in Mali and, and Burkina. And North Africa can do a lot in coordination with the United States through G5 Sahel, through TSTCP, through, 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 um, to deal with these common uh, security issues uh, down there. So some of the issues are about just articulating a policy. We don't have one yet. Uh, some is about spending. Some is about staffing. Some is about not deferring to Europe. Some is about worrying a little bit more about Russia and Libya and a little bit less about China everywhere and just engaging, engaging and engaging. You know, the more people going to the region, the more people talking to the region, the more people caring about the region uh, uh, always bears fruit. That's fantastic. The one thing we did not speak about, but in the future sessions, we can <clears throat> zero in and dig down deeper on the U.S. Africa Command. Um, everyone is aware of NATO, Pacific uh, Command, uh, North American defense agreements and the like, uh, and issues with the Caribbean in South America, but very little uh, is known about the dynamics, the background, the force, the interests, the positions, the roles, the actions thus far of the Africa Command. Uh, we'll save that for next time. But if we were in an auditorium, I think you would get uh, a standing ovation. Uh, the, the sitting ovation that you get is the reality of the reality of the virtuality of this particular cerebral massage. Thank you, Dr. Lawrence. All the best to our listeners and our viewers.
My pleasure. It's been a privilege.